Okay. I don't have anything to talk about besides I sound more sick than normal. I, I know I always sound sick and congested because I, like, go back and edit. Mm-hmm. I'm like, so that's what I sound like. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I sound disgusting. But I don't know. I think it's just allergies or something. Because last night I had a really bad sinus no, but it's, headache. It's, it's an allergy. It's allergy season again. Well, I know. I think it's, like, hay fever or something. Mm-hmm. And I feel it's like... It's the opposite of hay fever. It's the dead leaves and the dust and the mold. Yeah. Like, I don't know. But I, I don't know. I was so congested all day yesterday. And then I took Sudafed before I went to bed, and I woke up and I didn't have a headache. And then, like, ten minutes after I was awake, I had a headache again. I was like, no, please. This can't be my life. I understand. I relate. You went hiking today? At a place called Pelican Island. And I wanted to hike to, like, a certain point on it, because I knew there was, like, cool things there. Mm-hmm. We did not get that far. We gave up. It was not the hike we anticipated. We thought it was going to be much more just, like, walk around the shore of the island. The problem is not all the island had a shore. <laughs> mm. So there's, like, a lot of up and down and trudging through, like, wilderness that people do not go in, like, at all. While we were walking, though, like, like was, there was a lot of, lot of fun footprints there. Like, I think any animal in the state of Missouri that's not a bear or a mountain lion was present there. There were bobcat prints, fox, raccoon, coyote. And we, like, saw the occasional, like, human who had, like, walked along this, where there is sandbar yeah. and not bothered to go into the woods like the crazy people um, that James and I are. So we were walking, and then I saw barefoot, like, footprints. No. Like, human footprints Werewolf. barefoot in the sand. And I was like, you know, I get it. We're on a nice, it is a nice sandbar. Like, I can understand just want to put your feet in the sand for a little bit or something. But no. then we came across one that was just alone in the sand and it wasn't werewolf i'm telling you it's not like it could be washed away like that's not there's no water over this sandbar yeah um unless the river rises like four feet like there's no tide that's coming in that's not that's not how this works right here but it's just like one lone human footprint and it's not like an old one (laughs) It's not like it happened right like ten minutes ago. But yeah. It's not. It's not like it's like the rain. It's it's after the rain that happened this week. Yeah. So it's it's sometime between Friday and today that someone was out there and put a singular foot into this space and had no other footprints anywhere. It's like they one foot touched down and gone, but there's no other place for them to have like jumped off of. There's no like. There's no. no. I don't know how they did it. It's very confusing to me. It's and then as we were walking back. We hadn't seen anybody else on this hike because no one else is crazy. I can't emphasize it enough. This is not where humans are supposed to be. <laughs> um, so we saw someone else. And we're like, well, it sort of makes me feel good because they had a dog with them. So it means whatever they did, they didn't go through the woods because the dog couldn't have gotten up the way that you had to get into the woods. Because it's yeah. like a dog can't climb that way. <laughs> Um, so there must be some way that we don't have to go into the woods again, which is great news for us. So we, like, we're walking, 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 following this person way in the, I mean, like, distance, distance, like, couldn't, their dog was semi-large and dark colored. Mm -hmm. That's all I could tell. Um, following, following, following. Uh, (laughs) they disappeared around a bend and we never saw them again. 
Weird. <laughs> Their footprints stopped and everything. <laughs> oh, and they were bare feet the whole time, by the way. This person we were following was in, like, we like we could see the fresh, it's like bare those foot person. footprints. There's, either this person lives in the woods. Yeah, why are you, it's too cold it's out too today cold. to be barefoot. It's 60 degrees no. outside. The ground is cold. No. Anyway, so I don't know what that was, but it did, um, I, you know, it was the needed motivation I needed to get out of there because I was, I was hurting. That was a tough hike. <laughs> they were leading you out. Yep. So that island might be haunted by um, a ghost person who walks around barefoot and their um, dog. Doggy. Well, that's my goals. If I'm dead, my dogs better be ghosts with me. Can you imagine the number of dogs that you would have, like... (laughs) I don't... (laughs) By the time you die. (laughs) The only way I'll make it through life is knowing, or at least dreaming, that every animal I've ever tried to attempt to rescue will be there with me forever in the afterlife, <laughs> wherever that may be. I hope that it's like I get to haunt a house with all the dogs, especially Finley, because he's the noisiest. Finley would be the worst ghost to have. Nobody would ever stay in the house. All right, you should go first. Okay. You, you've been having more upsetting stories than me. So today we're talking about the James and Nederland Theater and Death Alley. You know, I didn't, I knew you were doing paranormal. It didn't occur to me that that's wild that this is an upsetting paranormal, because that's not usually how it works. So, I got my information from wikipedia.org, cbsnews.com, atlasobscura.com, and chewchicago.com. So, here's the history. Um, so, well, it's I guess it's also the Iroquois, Iroquois Theater. There's um, another name for it. Yeah. Um, so, the Iroquois Theater was low. I don't know why I said Iroquois. Like, I would like say Illinois. Illinois. <laughs> anyway. The Iroquois Theater was located at 26 West Randolph Street between State Street and Dearborn Street. They chose to build in this location specifically specifically to attract women visiting the city on, by the way, this is in Chicago, um, the city on day trips who would feel more comfortable attending a theater near the police patrolled loop shopping district. So that's pretty smart. That is smart. The theater opened on November 23rd, 1903. Um, after many delays from labor unrest and just, like, I don't know. They were saying something about, like, the architect never even, like, finished designs. And oh, goodness. There's it was just, just behind in, like, every way it could possibly issues. be. Um, it was said to be the most beautiful theater in Chicago, and Walter K. Hill wrote, quote, Competent judges state that few theaters in America can rival its architectural perfections. Even though it wasn't necessarily ever finished by an architect? Yeah, I- <laughs> well, it's like it was, but like I don't. I think they finally finished, but like there were things that just weren't like completely polished and like yeah. on the designs, not necessarily the building itself. Um, in architectural ways, at least. Mm-hmm. The theater had a capacity of one thousand six hundred and two, with three audience levels. They go through like a long thing about like the orchestra pit, and this level and this level. And I was like, I don't care about those details if I'm being honest. Um, however, there was only one entrance, but I feel like that's normal for a theater. Um, a broad stairway led from the foyer to the balcony level, and was also used to reach the stair to the gallery level. That's the other level. Mm-hmm that I was thinking of. I don't remember all the names. Um, The theater designer said this allowed patrons to see and be seen regardless of the price of their seats. 
the common stairway ignored Chicago fire ordinances that required separate okay, I stairways. Knew, I knew the fact that you mentioned it was one entry, one entry. Yeah. Like, oh, everyone's gonna die. And exits they? for each balcony. <laughs> uh, the design caused issues with people exiting the gallery because they had to deal with a crowd leaving the balcony level and people coming down from the upper levels who all met the orchestra level patrons in the foyer. The backstage areas were unusually large. They mentioned this on multiple occasions, and I was like, it doesn't really matter for the rest of the story, but I'll, I'll mention it. Um, the dressing rooms were on fire levels. What does that mean? That could be a typo. I don't know. Um, and but, an but elevator. Like they weren't, they're not on the. <laughs> and an elevator was available to transport actors down to the stage level. So I think it. They're either ab- above or below yeah. the stage. Anyway, the theater was deemed absolutely fireproof in advertisements oh. and playbills but hmm. there were a lot of issues with their fire readiness <laughs> immediately on their like can you imagine if you just like got a flyer well this was like to... what right after the chicago fires oh when the okay, whole chicago burnt down i think i don't remember when that burned um down. i think it was like late 1800s we can look it up you can look it up i don't remember so, um, but there were still a lot of issues with their fire readiness. An editor of Fireproof Magazine, which that cracked me up. No. Like, who who reads these they're, magazines? They're too, they're too on top of it. Um, toured the theater during construction and noted, quote, the absence of an intake or stage draft shaft, the exposed reinforcement of the arch, the presence of wood trim on everything, and the inadequate provision, provision of exits. <clears throat> Um, there were no sprinklers, alarms, telephones, or water connections. Uh, there was an on-site firefighting, uh, fire, there was on-site firefighting equipment, which was six Kill Fire fire extinguishers, and then, like, also an on-site firefighter, I'm pretty sure, just in case. Uh, the Great Chicago Fire was in 1871, so that seems too far away for you to really be advertising how fireproof Well, I don't know, is. because I don't remember know when they started building this. With how many delays there were. Oh, that's true. They might have started. Because, well, either way, they were probably replacing whatever theaters were in the area that had burnt down. It takes a while to rebuild a whole city. And theaters are not necessarily prime. No. So, on Wednesday, December 30th, 1903, the Iroquois put on a matinee performance of the Drury Lane musical Mr. Bluebeard. Attendance since opening night had been low since opening night... Uh, because there was bad weather, because it's December in Chicago. Um, labor unrest and some other factors, so, like, I don't know if their people didn't want to work or whatever, but attendance had been low since they had opened. Um, the December 30th performance, however, was different. Tickets were sold for every seat in the house, plus hundreds more for standing room areas at a back, at the back of the theater. Uh, many of the estimated two. 2,100 to 2,200 patrons were children, because it's a matinee. Mm-hmm. Um, the standing room areas were so crowded that some patrons sat in the in the aisles, which was blocking the exits. Around 3.15 p.m., shortly after the second act started, eight men and eight women were performing the double octet musical number uh, in the pale moonlight. With the stage light up, uh, with the stage light being a blue tint um a blue tinted spotlight Mm -hmm. to show you know a night scene um sparks from an arc light illuminated ignited why can't i talk right now sparks from an arc light ignited a muslin curtain uh possibly as a result of an electrical short circuit 
you see what I, I can't talk anyway short circuit um but I guess they never really like found out what caused it because there was another article I read that said like some guy had like knocked over a gas lantern or you not know again. not a gas one but not um, again the oil the lantern somebody said that that's what happened and then it did the curtains and whatever so I'm not completely sure what exactly started it but I don't think they are either um lamp operator William McMullen testified that the lamp see this was another thing it says that their lamp was placed too close to the curtain but that stage managers had failed to order or offer a solution when he first reported the problem so I'm like I don't really well the weird thing is this both came from the Wikipedia article uh-huh. so I'm like so what started the fire the sparks or a lamp that's too close to a curtain anyway mm-hmm um, so McMullen clapped at the fire when it started, but the flame raced up the curtain and out of his reach. Um, theater fireman William Sellers tried to douse the fire with the Kilgorn canisters, but um, that didn't work. Uh, and it had already spread to the fly gallery high above the stage, where there was several thousand square feet of highly flammable painted canvas scenery flats hanging. So it's going, it's traveling yeah, those, in the worst those, possible way. Yeah. So those, would, those would ignite. <laughs> so the stage manager tried to lower the, cur- the um, asbestos fire curtain, but it snagged on a light reflector that stuck out from under the proscenium arch. A chemist who later tested part of the curtain said it was made of mostly just wood pulp mixed with asbestos, so it would have been no help anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know... So, this is supposed to be fireproof, but when most of it's just wood pulp, it's just it's just cancer. <laughs> you just make cancer. Yeah. <laughs> so Foy, who had been preparing to take the stage, um, attempted to calm the crowd from the stage. First, he made sure his young son was in the care of a stagehand. He later wrote, quote, It stuck me as I looked out over the crowd during the first act that I had never before seen so many women and children in the audience. Even the gallery was full of mothers and children. Foy was considered a hero after the fire for his courage and staying on stage and trying to calm the crowd, even as a large chunks of burning scenery landed around him. By this time, many patrons on all levels were trying to flee the theater. Some had found the fire exits hidden behind draperies on the north side of the building, but found that they they could not... Why are they hidden behind draperies? I don't know, but they found that they could not open them because they had bascule locks, which aren't normal locks at all. Um, so bar owner Frank Hausman, a formal ba- a former baseball player for the Chicago Colts, um, defied an usher who refused to open a door. He got the door open because his icebox at home had a similar lock. Um, <laughs> he said his friend Charlie Dexter, who was also a baseball player, forced open another door. Um, and then the third door was also opened either by force or a gust of air. Um, but the other doors in the theater could not be opened. So there's only like... This random baseball player was like... Uh-uh. There's only like three or four doors that were able to uh, get open. Yeah. So some people panicked, cr- panicked, crushing or trampling others in an attempt to escape. As Many were do. killed while tra- while trapped in dead ends or while trying to open windows that looked like doors. So the dancers on the stage also had to flee. Many of them and other backstage workers were able to escape through the back exit, which were larger than normal back doors because Mm -hmm. they were for, like, getting prop stuff in and out. Um, When the back doors were opened, though, a blast of cold air rushed inside, fueling the flames and causing the fire to grow larger, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many performers were able to 
escape through the coal hatch and through windows in their dressing rooms. Others tried to escape through the west stage door, which opened inward, so it became jammed with all of the actors pressing on the door, like mm-hmm. everybody trying out, to push out, themselves out. out. Yeah. Um, but fortunately, a passing railroad agent saw the crowd pressing against the door and took off the hinges from the outside, so they were all able to escape. That is incredibly lucky. <laughs> I know. The vents above the stage were nailed or wired shut, so the fire traveled outwards towards the vents behind the dress circle and gallery 50 feet away. The hot gases and flames passed over the heads of those in the orchestra seats and incinerated any flammable materials in the gallery and dress circle levels, including patrons still trapped in those areas. Oh my goodness. Those in the dress circle and gallery who escaped the fireball could not reach the foyer because the stairwells were blocked by layers of fallen victims. The largest death toll was at the base of the stairways where hundreds of people were trampled, crushed, or asphyxiated. Or asphyxiated. People who were able to escape using the emergency exits on the north sides found themselves on fire escapes, um, which none of them were really properly installed. <laughs> And some of them caused people to trip when exiting the fire escape door. Uh, Many jumped or fell from the fire escapes to their deaths in the alley below. No. And the bodies of the first jumpers broke the falls of those who followed, but I don't think it was enough to, like, save their lives. Around 120 people. uh You're just going to get smooshed. Around 120 people ended up falling to their deaths from the fire escapes into the alley below. Formerly known as Couch Place, uh, it's now called Death's Alley and was called Death's Alley the next day in the newspaper, but that's where, you know, it's that's stuck. Fair. Um, students from the Northwestern University building north of the theater tried bridging the gap with a ladder and some boards between the rooftops. Um, who They actually saved a few people who were successfully able to make it across. There were people that went and fell off. Oh, because the Russians were yeah, But they actually were able to save a few people by doing that. Um, the theater had no fire alarm box or phone, so the Chicago Fire Department's Engine 13 wasn't alerted until a stagehand ran to the firehouse on their way to the scene at around, um, 3.33 p.m., and then a member of the Engine 13 activated an alarm box to call more units when they were, like, on their Mm -hmm. way. So the initial efforts, uh, focused on the people trapped on the fire escapes, because you can actively see the victims and, like, all the other things Mm -hmm. are blocked or whatever. Mm So, the alley to the north of the theater, which I said known as Couch Place, was icy, narrow, and full of smoke. Um, Aerial ladders could not be used in the alley, and black nets concealed by the smoke were useless. So, they tried, but there wasn't much they could do because Mm -hmm. you're telling people to jump, and you don't know if it's even under them. They don't know where to jump. So, the Chicago Police Department became involved when an officer patrolling the theater district saw people coming from the building in a panic, some with their clothes on fire. The officer reported this, and police soon uh, converged to the scene to control traffic and aid with the evacuation. Some of the city's 30 uniformed police matrons were called to the scene because of the large number of female casualties. Um, I didn't know they had lady police officers. I didn't either. That's that's cool. I know. So now (laughs) we're on to the victims. So many of those trapped inside tried climbing over piles of dead bodies in order to escape. Corpses were stacked 10 feet high around some of the blocked exits. This sounds like a literal war scene. It's like terrible. So the, And I've never even heard of no. this. So the fire only lasted about 30 minutes, but the victims were asphyxiated by the fire, smoke, and gases, or were crushed by other visitors trying to escape. 
It is estimated that 575 people were killed on the day of the fire and that at least 30 more died of injuries over the next, oh my gosh, you know, so many. weeks. As the recovery work began, the bodies, the burned bodies from inside the theater were stacked up in the alley before being taken to various mortuaries to be mm-hmm. um, identified and, you know, prepped to, for burial. Of the approximately 300 actors, dancers, and stagehands, only five died. Um, Aerialist Nellie Reed, an actor, an usher, and two female attendants were the five who died. Mm -hmm. Reed's role was to fly as a fairy over the audience on a trolley wire, showering them with pink carnations. But she was trapped above the stage while waiting for her entrance. And during the fire, she fell and died of burns and internal injuries three days later. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so the aftermath. In New York, on New Year's Eve, some theaters eliminated standing room. Buildings and fire codes were reformed. Theaters were closed for retrofitting all around the country um, and in some cities in Europe. Um, Of course, like this, you know, took media by storm and... It should. Spread around the world when it happened. It sounds like everyone Um, reacted in the right way. Yeah, (laughs) so all theater exits were required to be clearly marked and the doors configured so that... Even if they could not be pulled open from the outside, they could be pushed open from the inside. Mm. Um, Chicago Mayor Carter Harrison Jr. ordered all theaters in Chicago closed for six weeks after the fire. After the fire, it was alleged that fire inspectors had been bribed with free tickets to overlook code violations. And as a result of public outrage, many were charged with crimes, including Harrison, the uh, mayor. I mean, all the theaters had to do they had to fix things mm-hmm. which means no i mean there weren't fire codes yet obviously there aren't fire codes if all of the theaters well there were fire codes, codes. They, this theater didn't them, follow though. them yeah but none and of them are none following of them, them. they all had to go do these things so most charged were dismissed three years later because of the delaying tactics of their lawyers and their use of loopholes and inadequacies in the city's building and safety ordinances the exterior of the iroquois was intact and the theater reopened nine months later as hyde in Beam's musical hall music hall um the building later reopened as the colonial theater um which was demolished in 1925 to make way for the oriental theater which was later renamed the nederlander theater which is what it is today mm-hmm. um the iroquois memorial hospital was bu- built as a memorial of the fire um the hospital held a bronze Bass Relief Memorial by sculptor Lord Taft. I do not even remember that, but all no right. clue who that is. It now um, is near the building's La Salle Street entrance. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now on to the hauntings. So, some ghosts have been reported in and around the Nederlander... Nederlander? I think I'm saying that in right. Um, whatever it is. For many years, cast and crew um, have reported that while they're rehearsing on stage, they will look up in the balcony and see shadow figures moving around. Um, in Death Alley, there are reports of faint cries, apparitions, and feelings of being touched or even pushed by unseen forces, mm-hmm. like the people trying to get out. Yeah. Um, people have also reported seeing apparitions of strangers on the back stairs wearing period clothing from the turn of the last century. When the, what is it called, Nederlander? Nederlander. Nederlander was still the Ford Center for the Performing Artists as at the Oriental, they hosted a record-breaking run of the show Wicked. Um, one-time cast member Anna Gastier. Okay. You would recognize her if you looked her up. 
and she's in a lot of stuff, but she was on the show Celebrity Ghost Stories, um, where she talked about her paranormal experiences at the theater. She said the theater was steeped in glamour, but also described a dingy, dusty, and drafty quality. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's in, like, a bunch of stuff. Yeah. I enjoy her. <laughs> um, she described Death Alley as a place that, quote, always had the gloomiest, darkest, most dismal. It was a terrible alley. It really was. It felt mm. terrible. She played Alphaba? Alphaba? Alphaba. No. <laughs> um, and there <laughs> is a part where the witch is learning to fly. Which, like, it's good that they were telling me this because I have no clue about Wicked. Um, and a huge amount of smoke and fog envelops the auditorium. While flying, she said she would look out to the sides and see people in the wings. Ew. She said there were lots of stagehands on the production, but this was more people than what should have been there. Um, she said they were gathered, quote, almost like families gathering of people that were together. Mm. But once she landed, there wouldn't be anyone there. She also said she'd had to rush down the hallways to the dressing room and would hear children's voices. She said she once turned a corner and found a woman at the end of the hall near the stairwell. The woman was with two children, a boy and a girl, and all of them were in turn-of-the-last-century period clothing. Um, she said, quote, My first instinct was just kind of backstage instinct. Oh, there's another actor. I nodded. Um, the woman was very stoic. She didn't smile. She nodded back. When, she, when, um, what's her name? Anna, um, turned mm -hmm. another corner, the woman and the children were gone. When she asked her dresser about it, the dresser noted that December 30th was coming up and said that they might be the ghosts from the Iroquois fire. Ooh. In Death's Alley, people, um, encounter things and take lots of strange pictures, especially along the back walls. Nearly... Oh, nearby buildings are also affected by the ghosts. The Marshall Fields Department Store, um, the eighth floor of it was used as a triage hospital in morgue uh, for the first victims, or for the fire victims. Mm -hmm. um, the store has been known as Macy's on State Street since 2006, and there have been reports of hauntings on the eighth floor. Once there were, um, when the new employees' lockers were on that floor, a lot of the new employees reported experiencing, quote, weird things, um, but the lockers have since been moved somewhere else. I and don't trust new employees specifically, because when you're in a new space and you also have the jitters of a new job, nothing feels right anywhere you are. But that's the story of, uh, the James M., what is it, Niederlander? Nederland mm -hmm. Theater Nederland. and or Death the, Alley no um, and the Iroquois Theater. So that's literally one I've never heard. I really liked that one. Before. I 100% trust that it's haunted. When things that bad happen, energy has to be trapped. Yeah, literally over 600 people died in that fire. Yeah. Well, and not it, in the fire, but it had a capacity directly of, related of to the fire. So that's a significant portion of it. Yeah, and, well, you know, obviously all the seats weren't filled, but... Every, if you every include seat everybody who's working for there, it, yeah. It'd be pretty close to that many people were in attendance that day, whether it is as an employee or a... Yep. Or attending, attending. But I never heard of that. I was oh. like, dang. This is, um, I think, the wildest blatant murder I've ever covered. Okay. And I've covered some really goofy murders. Not, like, goofy as in funny it happened, but, like... The selection of events that happened yeah. leading up to it are just like, how did we get here? <laughs> I didn't know how to title it because, I mean, like, I don't, 
obviously I'm going to tell the story and the names are going to be included. So I'm going to get like the notoriety to the murderers. Yeah. But I also didn't want to name it after the kid. Both of them felt wrong. So instead I called it the perfect crime because that's what the murderers are trying to achieve. Okay. <laughs> um, my sources were the Boston Globe and Wikipedia. And like the Boston Globe from like 1924. Yeah. <laughs> Not recent Boston Globe. Um, most of it is from Wikipedia though, because that was pretty concise there, and it's just easier to follow than flipping between. I know. Than building a whole. It's story. so hard because I never want to take everything from Wikipedia, but then you find like all these other articles, and they either jump around or don't yeah. tell the full story, or it's just and, hard. And someone's already taken the time to put. It's the just story hard to together. take the notes from those kind of articles. So first, I'm gonna tell you about the murders. So Nathan Leopold was born in the. On the 19th of November, 1904, in Chicago, Illinois. He was born to a wealthy German-Jewish family. Um, He was considered a child prodigy. Um, He claimed that he spoke his first words at four months old. I don't know how he remembers that. Um, He was sensitive (laughs) um, about his appearance. He didn't think he looked nice. He probably didn't. Um, So he threw himself into academics, like... It's like an alternative. He's like, well, if, well, if I'm, I think ugly. I'm ugly, then I have to be smart. Um, so he studied 15 languages and was fluent in five. And so That's not a great number. By study, I mean he liked to read about other languages, um, but he was fluent in five, which is... That's a lot. That's a lot of languages. I mean, it is, but if you're saying that you studied, studied 15, 15 and you, you only, only got five, five, yeah, okay. Um, and here's, here's the thing I'm betting you, is that it was English, German... Hebrew, <laughs> probably French, and it I don't. It wouldn't be Spanish. I, it, I don't know. It what might else be it Spanish. Be. It also could be like another Germanic language because there are maybe Yiddish. Oh, it might be Yiddish. I don't know. Um, I don't know what they are. I'm speculating. Yeah. But <laughs> it's not like a great. You know, it's like, you know, he speaks Arabic and Mandarin and I was gonna yeah and and like a whole bunch of what are technically now useful languages, but like. What the old-timey alternative would have been. Yeah, I was going to say, during Um, that time, there's only a certain amount of languages you would have learned. Or wanted to. So he was a nationally recognized ornithologist. Do you still know what that is? No. No. Even after watching um, that movie, The Ornithologist, about the ornithologist's wife book. I don't know if I did. Oh, you watched that. You watched that movie. You watched that one a lot. Um, I don't remember what it was actually called. Um, Anyway, they study birds. Professional bird watchers. He was part of a group that identified. <laughs> no the, wonder why he's a murderer. He, he was part of a group that identified the Kirtland's warbler, um, and he donated many specimens to the Field Museum. Um, which, so he is a murderer already. Yeah. No. Oh, birds. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he yeah he donated these specimens, and he would like regularly write to the Field Museum about the specimens when he Red was in flag. jail. When he was in jail, like after <gasps> after everything. Ew. Because <laughs> I've already told you what happens. There's there can't be spoilers on that end. Um, so he obtained his bachelor's at the University of Chicago, where he was also part of the Phi Beta Kappa Honor Society. Red flag. Um, he, pl- <laughs> he planned on attending <laughs> Harvard Law School after taking a gap year um, to travel Europe. So he wanted to be a lawyer? He wanted to go to Harvard Law School. What else do you get at Harvard Law School? Well, you get a law degree and then you're never a lawyer. Doesn't mean you pass the bar. A lot of people get a degree they never eat. <laughs> Like me. Um, so Richard <laughs> Loeb, is this the next guy? 
So that first one is Nathan Leopold, and the next one's Richard Loeb. And they'll just be Leopold and Loeb yeah. for the rest of it. So Richard Loeb was born on the 11th of June, 1905, in Chicago, Illinois. He was the second born of four brothers. His, was the um, other guy born in Chicago? Are yeah, they're both from Chicago. Immigrant? Okay. No, they're both from Chicago. Okay. I think their parents are more recent. I don't okay. know if they're the ones that immediately came over or what, but um, anyway... Loeb was from a Jewish Catholic family, and by that I mean one parent was Jewish yep. and one parent was Catholic. Yeah. You're not um, both. <laughs> <laughs> uh, his father was a wealthy lawyer and one of the vice presidents of Sears, Roebuck & Co., so he's a rich man. Rich man. Um, Loeb was considered to be exceptionally intelligent from a young age and an avid reader, um, and he preferred stories about history, detectives, and crime. Mm. Um, but he was, like, genuinely... Like a like a prodigy, Loeb was. Um, I'm I'm not saying that Leopold wasn't, but there's no proof when you when we compare what Loeb has did in his childhood, which we'll get to. Um, so Loeb, um, he started high school at the age of twelve. Okay. He attended enough said. an experimental university high school. It's like what? It, it's just a new kind of high school that was attached to a university, so it's oh. like an early college preparatory. It's like, not that they didn't shock exist, but or no, it's it's like you know, like how SLU has a high school. It's like one of those, yeah. and I think it was just like new and shiny. Um, he completed high school in two years, so Jeez. he graduated from high school at the age of fourteen. He did this with the help of his governess, like she was. She did his homework tutoring him, I assume. Oh, um, getting well because like that's. To navigate high school, you need an adult to do it. And it well, wasn't yeah. his parents. It was his governess who was being the adult to navigate it. Um, he graduated from University of Michigan at the age of 17. So he graduated high school at 14. Three years later, graduated with a bachelor's degree at the age of 17. Um, then he enrolled at the University of Chicago Law School. Um, and he was taking courses in constitutional law. He intended on getting his degree in... Uh, a graduate degree in history, though. He was just starting with... He's getting all the subjects he likes out of the way. Yeah. Yep. Um, he was considered social. Uh, he played tennis. And this There's is not something flag for him. <laughs> that would come up otherwise, but he was considered of, like, average to okay looking. Like, he wasn't, he didn't have a problem with how he looked and no one else would yeah. have been like, oh, he's odd looking. I don't think anyone would say that the other guy was odd looking. He was just really self-conscious. There are pictures of him? Oh, yeah, there's pictures of both Let of them. Let me see. They knew each other casually growing up. They, like, were neighbors, but not, like, immediate neighbors. Kind of in the and same circles. And they didn't really play with each other. And it's not because they weren't the same age. I think it's just because Loeb was on another level, and he was doing its own thing. Um, and I also don't think they were in the same social circles, necessarily. Like, socioeconomically, yes. Well, I was going to say, not Personally, the same, like, no. <laughs> friend groups, but, yeah. like, you knew each other. Yeah. You knew so of each other, at least. They became better friends um, while at the University of Chicago. And they bonded over their shared love of crime. Which is, I mean, that's not an abnormal thing to make friends over now is enjoying true crime. Well, together. nowadays, no. <laughs> but back, I mean, I guess back then, no, either, because they did that too. tourism yeah. stuff. Um, it just only matters in this case because of what they do. <laughs> So, Leopold was particularly interested in the idea of the Ubermensch, um, oh. which is like, I forget, some something or other, Nietzsche or something, somebody, 
there's some philosopher at the time who came up with the idea of the ubermensch, which is like a superior superior form of human um, that possesses extraordinary and unusual abilities as well as superior intellect that would what? allow them to be above the law. Why did I type it in and like the right below the actual spelling of it, which I didn't type it wrong. Yeah. I just didn't type it out all the way. It says sleep schedule. Ubermensch no sleep schedule. I have no idea what that is. Guy, it's gotta be um, these Nazi people looking this stuff up. Yeah, Fried- Friedrich uh, Nietzsche. Nietzsche? Sure. He's somebody I know of. He's a philosopher from the 1880s. So Loeb was really obsessed with this idea. So he believed, like, not Loeb, sorry, Leopold was really obsessed with this idea. And Leopold believed that he and Loeb were ubermenschen. Um, and therefore, neither of them were bound to societal norms or the um, law. Apparently, it means a creative individual who does not merely follow or obey the laws of others, even the laws of God. Exactly. That's so like they're you, literally you're above, above everything. everything. Um, that's how superior. So he, Leopold, thinks that he and Loeb are these individuals. Okay. Um, so to prove this, the two began to do what many young, dumb people do. Um, started committing acts of petty theft and vandalism. Um, which is like, <laughs> like, I mean, they're like, how old are they? So the Ubermensch, uh, sleep schedule? They're like 20 years old, which is, this is a totally normal time for people to be doing stupid petty theft and vandalism <laughs> crimes, right? I mean, I guess, especially cause that guy didn't really have a childhood. Oh yeah. Especially you know? if the guy didn't have a childhood cause he really didn't. Loeb didn't have a childhood. This sleep schedule thing is six 20 minute naps. Uh, that are spaced evenly throughout the day, totaling two hours of sleep per day. How do you do that? Why would you do that? So you can be actively crazy and then not know, because that would make you actively crazy. Yeah, that's... Don't do that. (laughs) Anyway. Um, (laughs) Maybe they're practicing that. So, for example, one of their petty theft... um, Theft. Excursions was... They broke into a frat house at the University of Michigan and stole pen knives, a camera, and a typewriter. Um, so they didn't. You know, it's get... like if they're gonna thieve stuff, why not actually like take something? I mean, they're the both point relatively is to like money, do it and right? get away so with they it. They don't need to. The idea but, is to like... do the crime and get away with it. They don't like to not get caught. Um, so and they don't get caught. So they start to do bigger crimes because they want to get attention for it they want to be in the news they have that like that serial killer mentality of like they want to be known for what they're doing if they're not they'll up the ante in stupid ways well then why wouldn't you be like a vigilante or something right why wouldn't you go batman you have enough money yeah anyway so they start doing bigger crimes so they start doing arson okay Um, but this they set the theater on fire (laughs) they could they could they could time frame well, because um, when I was reading about it, I was like, you know, it's really strange that on the day that there's more than ever, um, you know, That is really, really weird. Why did a fire start mm-hmm. that day? That was bothering so, me too, but I forgot to suspicious. say it in the moment. Um, so the arson and the petty theft and the vandalism, none of them are getting attention. There's no, like, media saying, oh, somebody did this thing. Who was it? And that's what they wanted. They wanted, they wanted the notoriety to know they did it, but no one yeah. else can figure out who did it, is what they're going for. Um, so they decide to stage the perfect crime to get the media attention that they so desperately craved. Um, they're going to use this perfect crime to prove that they were ubermenschen, that they were better than everybody else and above the law. And I don't think not getting caught proves that you're above the law. I think it would be if you did it, got and caught, then get away with it. and still get away with yeah, it. Yeah, and can that's, live a normal life. That's being above the law. 
So they decided. I mean, they're already relatively above the law, being richer than most people. I was people. like, they could do this just being rich. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and so then <laughs> they decided that the best way to get the media's attention was to kidnap and murder a child. Not just kidnap, but murder had to be included in this. Well, why wouldn't you like do that to some rich person that everybody knows? That would be a better way to do this too. Yeah, it's correct. But you're coming up with many, many great examples of how they did not not um, achieve the perfect crime. That's why. So over the course of seven months, seven months, they planned every detail of this crime, <laughs> from abduction method to how to dispose of the body. They thought of all why the little things you have long? to do. I don't know. I don't know if it's because someone was dragging their feet or not either. It could have been like one is like, I don't know. And they're like, no, we should do this and we should do it this way. Oh, I don't think we should do it this way. If we're going to do it, we need to do it this way. Like, yeah, who knows? I don't know. No one told me. Um, anyway, to help keep authorities off their trail, they decided to make a fake ransom note to obscure their motive because they weren't there for the money. They were just yeah. there for the notoriety. Um, so they were going to string along the authorities with a series of phone calls, leading them here and there, trying to, like, comply with demands. You're like, okay, now you have to go over here and do this thing here. And then once you do that, we'll tell you the next thing. And then, you know. Yeah. A scavenger hunt of like in ransom the, demands. Like in the older lady kidnapping. Exactly, like the older lady kidnapping. That we just covered recently, uh-huh. yeah. So they wrote up a ransom note on the same typewriter they had stolen from the frat house. <laughs> They decided that a chisel was the ideal murder weapon, which is so not even so like strange an ice pick or something like which what? Is strangulation, especially when you think about how they like when we get to down to like what they actually did, a chisel doesn't make sense. <laughs> so after they've decided <laughs> all your these perfect details, crime, the chisel is your tool of right choice. Um, so. They've planned all these little bits and bobbles out. They finally are like, okay, now we need to figure out who we're going to kidnap and murder. So they're searching for the perfect child. Um, and they're doing this mainly by watching the boys' school, um, the boys in the schoolyard of the Harvard School for Boys in Kensworth, which is the neighborhood they're from. Mm-hmm. And it's the same school that Leopold went to as a kid. Mm-hmm. So they're literally driving down the block from where they live... <laughs> To the neighborhood school and watching the children, trying to figure out which one will be perfect. You know, what would have been perfect is if they would have picked, like, a little street urchin boy. Right. And well, then... but you can't ransom them. You don't need to. No, you don't. Instead, you want the body to be found and, like, say, wow, this horrible thing happened. But then nobody knows who it is. Exactly. So then That's... no one cares enough to solve well, it. It depends on how you leave the body. <laughs> Well, like if it's a little orphan child, like no, but a stranger child, insane, that nobody knows. Fantastical thing, like not that it's fantastic, but like like a crazy, crazy thing. Like again, the idea is you're supposed to be doing a crime. It's supposed to be the perfect crime, and you want to get media attention. Well, if you want it to be the perfect crime, then you would make it look like whether well, you were murdered. Mm. Anyway. But then that wouldn't necessarily get media attention. They want the media attention. They need to go bigger than they definitely do. They're not so big. So they decide on Robert, who went by Bobby Franks, um, who was 14 years old. He was the son of Jake, Jake Franks, who was a wealthy Chicago watch manufacturer. Um, he was also Loeb's second cousin and what? his across-the-street neighbor, who would sometimes come over to play tennis. Why did you decide on someone you're related to? We'll get there. <laughs> So on the 21st of May, 1924, Leopold rented a car 
under the name uh, Morton D. Ballard. The two offered Bobby a ride home from school. Bobby initially refused because he only needed to walk two blocks. Why would he need to get in the car? Um, So strike number one on you really didn't think that through. (laughs) Anyway, Loeb is able to persuade him into the car um, to discuss a tennis racket he had been using. Um, They, what exactly happens next is debated. Um, They... It, one of them is driving and they don't know who's driving and one of them does the murdering and they don't uh-huh. know who did the murdering because both of them have different things to say and we'll get to that later but either way Bobby gets in the passenger seat one of the guys is in the back um, they all drive off uh, whoever's in the back hits Bobby several times in the head with the chisel then drags him into the back seat onto the you floorboard. Know, I gotta look at what a chisel looks um, like. Where he is gagged and eventually dies of his wounds. So he wasn't necessarily killed instantaneously, which sucks. Yeah. Um. So the men then drive to Wolf do you, Lake. Do you think it was this kind or this kind? I think it was that kind. Why? I don't know. Anyway. Well, that's what I, like, this is what I think of when I think of, you know, a chisel. Not, that's like an ice pick. could be a stone chisel. But that's what I'm thinking of. It could be the ice pick kind, though, because that's a common. But then why not get an ice pick? What if it was like that one? <laughs> Sorry. This I don't is, know. This is just like. They didn't tell me more details about what kind of chisel. Blowing my mind. Anyway, so they drive down to Wolf Lake in Hammond, Indiana, and wait until it's dark. Then they remove Bobby's clothes and pour hydraulic, hydraulic hydrochloric acid <laughs> over his face Hydronic to help hide his identity. And they also pour it over his genitals to hide that he had been circumcised. At least that's what they claim. Um, they then hid the body in a culvert along the railroad tracks north of the lake. By the time they get back to Chicago, Bobby has already been determined missing and people are searching for him. So it's not even been 24 hours. Um, Leopold calls Bobby's mom saying his name is George Johnson, like Leopold pretending to be George Johnson, and he has kidnapped Bobby, and that ransom instructions are soon to follow. Um, They then mail the ransom note, which gets there the next morning. Um, They burn Bobby's clothes. They clean the blood out of the rental car, and they spend the rest of the day playing cards. So that's... Because they did that at night. They get there the next morning, and that's what they do that immediate day after. Um, so the next day, the Franks receive the ransom note in the mail. Um, Leopold calls them a second time and gave them the first set of instructions um, to go to a certain store and get the next set of instructions. Immediately, the whole set of, like, ransom things falls apart because whoever, like, the family member was who was, like, set out to the address, like, they didn't. Whoever, either someone when they were on the phone call, did not write it down, right, and didn't remember it that way, or when they, like, were sent out to go to the location, literally forgot what the location was and never (laughs) arrived. Um, And then, so, like, they couldn't continue with that. And then, also, basically at the same time, Bobby's body was found. So they did not hide that well. No. Even across state lines? Yep. Anyway. Um, the men were like, oh, shoot. So they destroyed the typewriter and burned the blanket that they used to move the body. I don't know why they hadn't done that yet. <laughs> yeah, why they still have that? Um, I think they wanted to type out more ransom notes on the typewriter, but I don't know why they didn't burn the blanket when well, they no, burned the Well, no, on the typewriter, yeah. Um, so Loeb just continues on with life as usual after that, because they sort of think they're out of the dark. Or, yeah, something like that. They think they're fine. <laughs> 
Leopold out of the woods. That's it. Leopold continued with his life as usual. I was like, what are you trying, what are you trying Lobe, to say? Lobe continues with life as usual. He's like, okay, that was a weird, terrible thing we did. I need to get back to my life. Leopold, Go back to law school. on the other hand, couldn't stop talking about the murder. He spoke to reporters and police freely. He even uh, was quoted as saying to a detective, if I were to murder anybody, it would have been such a cocky little son of a beep as Bobby Franks. So the reason they chose Bobby Franks... You're saying Franks, that about a 14-year-old? Yeah. It's because he probably beat Leopold in tennis. Oh, I wouldn't doubt That's it. my thought process there. I have no proof, That's hilarious. but I have to assume. Because Leopold's the dumber one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's the one with the whole He's bunch of a self-confidence issues. Yeah. A little boy can beat me at times. So when police located the body, they found a pair of glasses with it that were not Bobby's. Um, they were a common prescription frame, but the hinges were unusual and had been purchased by only three people in Chicago. And the one hinges. of those people was Leopold. I am impressed at the level of like attention that the cops were paying. Like I in, mean, it is a richer case. boy that they kidnap, so um, more chance of them actually doing anyway, work to so figure it out. Labeled, I can't believe the fact that one, he did not realize his glasses were missing. Two, that like especially he if they actually need them, his glasses to go missing if it's supposed to be the perfect crime. Um, no crime is a perfect crime. <laughs> no, they're not obviously. <laughs> anyway. So when questioned about the glasses, Leopold said, oh, they must have fallen out of my pocket when I was bird watching. Um, and I, I like bird watching during a trip to the lake the previous weekend, which is like actually a semi-decent excuse if you know this guy, because he like is an avid ornithologist. So it's not like a terrible excuse, but it's not one that gets you out of the like woods. Because no. um, you just admitted to being in the area. Yeah. Well, and you're also are from, like, you, you are from the same neighborhood as the kid. So you're connected to him twice now. I mean, you're if you've already the called the kid, like, cocky and whatever that you don't like yeah. him, you could have been like, I bet he stole him from me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? See, that would have been a better... That dang kid. I can't stand him. <laughs> you know? Like, mm-hmm. why wouldn't you be like that? Because he's, he's dumb man. He's not That's why. about it. So on May 29th, um, Leopold and Loeb are called in for questioning... They said that the night of the murder, they had picked up two women in Chicago in Leopold's car and dropped them off near a golf course, never learning what their first names are, uh, more than their first names. Like, they, so they couldn't, like, identify them further. Like, yeah. Well, it was, it was Emily and Sarah. We don't know exactly who. Um, this alibi basically immediately fell through when Leopold's chauffeur um, said to the police that, oh, that is not possible because Leopold's car has been in the shop. Um, so he can't drive his car <laughs> anywhere. Loeb's the first to confess. <laughs> he said Leopold planned everything and that he is the one who killed Bobby in the backseat of the car while Loeb drove. Leopold confessed shortly after and said the opposite, that Leopold was the one driving and Loeb was the one in the back who killed Bobby. Um, I'm inclined to believe Loeb, but the general, like, media circus about it says that Leopold that um like leopold's version is true and then Loeb was the murderer i still think it leopold's the murderer but yeah i have no proof other than feelings either we know they did it either way well, they're no, he both 100 like <laughs> um, he literally told reporters he didn't like him there's what was considered circumstantial evidence i don't know why it's considered circumstantial specifically but there was an eyewitness carl 
Ulvig, who said he saw Loeb driving the car and Leopold in the back seat, um, even though still the general consensus again by the media is that Loeb is the killer and who was in the back seat, even though there's not anybody who said that Leopold was the driver. Yeah. So that's weird to me. This oh, this is something noted to be noted after Loeb's death. Like we're not at his death yet. This is like we're going briefly into the future before we go back to trial times. Okay. Um. So. Years after Loeb's death, Leopold said that he had begged Loeb to confess to being the murderer to quote, um, as quote, this is why he wanted him to do it, Mopsy feels less terrible than she might, thinking you did it. Um, is that and, his aunt or something? That's his mother, Audrey. Mopsy. Oh, oh. Mopsy. It's, it's M-O-M-P-S-I-E. Mopsy. No. <laughs> feels less terrible than she might, thinking you did it. So, Loeb, can you please say it so my mummy feels better? Like... <laughs> No, your mommy raised a murderer. She um, can get over and herself. And re- replied to that, um, and I'm not going to take that shred of comfort away from her, <laughs> which means he's not going to change his stance. She can think whatever she wants. Uh, so I still think Leopold did it. Oh, well, yeah. Because he's trying so hard to make Loeb say he did it <laughs> so that his mummy feels better. Well, because then it's like, even if, you're, um, then if your mom thinks that you did it, then you did it honestly because if you're telling your mom that you didn't do it but she and still she's still thinks like you did, mm, then... i'd have to hear it from yeah. her before i believe it wasn't you suggest that you might be the murderer <laughs> you are the murderer so both men admitted that their motive was thrill-seeking and their aspiration to commit the perfect crime that's such um, a great motive well it's not a good motive at all <laughs> both said that they did not look forward to the killing but leopold this is this is why i think leopold did it even more so, Leopold did say that he was interested in learning what it would feel like to commit a murder and was disappointed um, when after committing the crime, he felt the same as ever. Oh, so he's a sociopath. Because I a psychopath. Because if really he is not the one who killed Bobby directly, he would be like, I still don't quite know. Because I wasn't the one to, like, take the life out of the kid right i was just the getaway i mean i can the way i see him killing these little uh, specimens that he sends to the museum is him like snapping their necks in his hand going like i think that's what you're supposed to do for little birds yeah and that's very it's murderer it's really really weird to me that like animal scientists do that to animals because if you're supposed to love and preserve them why are you doing that well because like so many plant scientists didn't even do that they just threw them in detail it doesn't mean they didn't pick them, That's but it'd be I'm like, that, like... I'm telling you. To draw the bird that was a red flag when you're telling me he sent his specimens in. Um, oh, the typewriter, which they disposed of, uh, was recovered from Jackson Park Lagoon on June 7th. And I assume it's not because they were searching the lagoon for things. Somebody probably I think went, like, fishing. Where and... Either someone was fishing and accidentally pulled it up, or they're like, oh, yeah, the typewriter. We, like, they... Loeb and Leopold said. We saw them we throw a typewriter, typewriter in the pond. <laughs> that is something noteworthy. <laughs> Um, during the trial, they are initially going to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, but their lawyer, who's like a very good lawyer, um, and it was super against the death penalty, said, no, 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 you can't do that because if they find you guilty, you will get the death penalty. Instead, if you plead guilty, um, they'll have to sentence you to life in prison. Um, because uh-huh. I, because he knew that they would be found guilty no matter what. So He's like, these are the dumbest They're either going I've to get the electric with. chair or... How old were they when they committed the crime? 20. Yeah, okay. Ish, somewhere around there. Um, so the defense presented a lot of psychiatric testimony to try to establish um, mitigated circumstances. 
some of the examples were childhood neglect in the form of absent parents. No, um, not an excuse. And then specifically in Leopold's case that he may or may not have been sexually abused by his governess, which is entirely possible, but still not an excuse. So there was also a letter written by Leopold that claimed he and Loeb were having a homosexual affair. Um, and that was used to be like, say it's mitigated circumstances. Uh, one witness even testified that both had dysfunctional endocrine glands that had added to the delusion that led them to committing the crime. Um, I don't think that witness should be trusted. No. But that was like a weirdly specific thing that they had somebody testify about. Nope. So they were both sentenced to life in prison. Shocking. Loeb died in prison in 1936. Um, he was murdered by another inmate who slashed him with a straight razor 58 times in the showers. Dang. Um, I don't know why, specifically. <laughs> but that is what happened to him. Were they at the same prison? I don't remember. Or sent to different I couldn't figure that out. And I didn't, I I didn't look hard, but it wasn't said. Yeah. Um, Leopold went into a depression after Loeb's death. He um, then became a model prisoner and volunteered to be part of the Statesville Penitentiary Malaria Study, where he deliberately had been given malaria in purpose of studying treatments. What? Um, which, to be fair, I think it totally on track for him. Still, do, he wants to do science things, right? Like, here's an opportunity to do science things. It's really funny because he a lot of got, got a lot of flack for doing it because most of the other participants were not voluntary. Um, and they would keep on going in and, like, really talking about this guy who volunteered, like, Leopold for voluntarily yeah. doing it, um, which encouraged them to continue doing the study on people who were unwilling to participate. <laughs> um, he was granted parole, which I feel like he no. shouldn't be allowed to do if you get life in prison, in 1958, um, where he found... After that, he found work as a medical technician in Puerto Rico. And then there's a whole bunch about, like, his life after that. And I felt like he didn't deserve to have the fact that he had this free, nice life in Puerto Rico afterward told. No. Like, no, you're a bad person. You don't deserve nice things. Um, I do love Hold on. This is my favorite part. <laughs> so the same year um, they got out, he tried to start the Leopold Foundation to be funded by the royalties off his book, Life Plus 99 Years which is, um, the book is part of, like, one of his, like, look, I've really reformed myself. Look at this book. Yeah. Being a better human. Yeah. Um, the organization was to aid emotionally disturbed, uh, or delinquent youths. You were a youth. He's saying if someone had done this for him, then he wouldn't have done what he did kind of thing. But either way, he didn't get to do it because it was seen as a violation of his parole somehow. I don't know how, but, like, the state of Illinois said, no, you can't do that. Um, I agree. He doesn't deserve that shining star on his resume. Anyway, while in prison, like, while uh, Leopold was still in prison, uh, Meyer Levin wrote a fictionalized account of the crime called Compulsion, and he'd initially, like, asked Leopold for, like, insight on, like, what actually happened, and uh-huh. Leopold said, no, I'm not helping you with that. So uh, Meyer Levin said, okay, and wrote it anyway. Um, so it's, you know, basically all fictionalized, fictional except for what, like, was in the newspapers. Yeah. So, you know, Leopold missed out on an opportunity to be shown in a slightly less bad light. Um so this book did pretty well, and then in 1959, production on a film ab- adaptation of it began, and Leopold tried to block it <laughs> because it said he, he said it would defame him. Oh my gosh, you're literally a murderer. 
And they took it to court, and the Illinois Supreme Court said, No, you are the confessed perpetrator of what you call the crime of the century. There is no harm to your reputation on making a movie on the subject matter. And that's so funny to me, because it's so true. Ridiculous. You're defaming me for... For a murder I admitted to committing. I admitted to committing. Um... Um, the crime inspired uh, numerous works like Scream, Weird, Native Son, Rope, and a number of episodes from various crime series. Yeah. Um, and that's what apparently was supposed to be the perfect crime. <laughs> I can't. That's so ridiculous. I thought you'd enjoy these dummies. Well, it's like in one point you don't want to bring attention to them because that's what they wanted. But I think we did good because I don't think we brought positive how stupid they are. That was my thought process. (laughs) Like it's like I really like I know part of why people do some of these crimes is is for that notoriety. But if you don't give them positive, and here's the thing, attention for some people. All attention for some people is good attention, bad, negative or positive. It doesn't matter. Well, and they're dead now. Mm -hmm. They're dead. It's a hundred years ago. Well, and they're not being remembered for what they wanted to be remembered <laughs> by. Yeah. So, anyway. Uh, I want to know what they thought they were going... Like, if they had achieved this somehow... You know they would have come out and said they did it years later, right? Like, the next day, there's that no guy way... would have... Yeah, no, he, could, there's, he couldn't keep it secret. There's no way he was ever going to be able to keep it secret. Well, it's like, if both these guys are so smart... Like, I get there's some people that think they're so smart, they're above everything, whatever. Obviously, they thought that, but, like... The one guy who, like, went on living his life like normal, how would you ever tr- trust someone like the guy who just can't keep his mouth shut? Right. To commit the crime with. Right. Because that's not just something after you commit a crime, you'll be like that. You're like that always. I think, <laughs> like, again, I know nothing special about this case, but I think it was all Leopold and Loeb was because he was rushed through school so much, had a lot of, like, social things he wasn't familiar yeah. with. Because he didn't have that childhood, so he didn't know to say no, like, and I'm not saying it's an excuse, I'm saying I think that's how he got drug along, is that his, he didn't have that childhood, so he was more willing to just sort of go along with this friend he found. Yeah. Who had similar interests, because he may very well have not had friends of the same age of similar interests until now. Everybody probably thought it was weird or something, yeah. Yeah, because he was just so smart. I feel bad for neither of them, but I do think that's sort of how he got, he found himself in that position ridiculous because people will do really really crazy things to be socially accepted cannot relate anyway uh try not to kill anybody and don't visit the Ouija boards Bye. bye